0: Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and you can find us on Facebook at the wonderful world of wine. again and welcome to another week of the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. And every week we get together to talk with you about some of the trending topics in the wine world. And how are you this week, my friend? Everything
1: is good, Kim. How are you this week?
0: Great. I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Nice to be talking wine with you again. Yeah, we love
1: talking wine and, and talking with our listeners and getting feedback on what we talk about. It's always good to hear what people think of the show. So okay. let us know, please.
0: And we try to bring you topics that we think will help you in your wine journey or help you the next time you're standing in front of a wine wall at a liquor store or a wine store. And uh, the first article that we have to talk about today is about how much you should be sp- spending on a bottle of wine according to experts. Now, there are a lot of experts out there, and we are a couple of them. So we are uh, excited to bring you sort of a different perspective on the pricing structure of wine this week.
1: Yeah, and this was actually, I thought, a good follow-up on an article we talked about just recently that we mentioned, I think the sweet spot we talked about before they were saying was about $12 was what they were saying. It's kind of the sweet spot Mm -hmm. to spend on a bottle of wine. And And this article said $15 was kind of the magic spot But they took another turn on it, Kim, and saying a $15 bottle will give you four times as much wine for the money. Yeah, they kind of,
0: you know, decided to break it down in a, well, and and we every once in a while run into the sort of hypothetical question of, is a $100 bottle of wine 10 times as good as a $10 bottle of wine? And and I, I feel like that's the jumping off point that they took in this. Where it's like a fifteen dollar bottle of wine is not three times better than a five-dollar wine, it's four times better than a five-dollar bottle of wine. So yeah, I thought that was an interesting way to approach the subject.
1: Yeah. And the stat they gave when putting a a value towards that money that they put on this was they were saying 80 cents worth of wine is actually in seven dollar bottle of wine. And I wanted to get you a point of view on that, Kim. So roughly say a $10 bottle, you're saying what's maybe a little bit over a dollar they feel is the real value of the wine that's going into the the price of the wine. What did you think about putting that value?
0: I think that only focusing on how much did this juice actually cost is a little misleading because yes, there is a cost to the actual raw material that goes into the bottle. But then there are other costs associated with that that aren't just lining somebody's pocket. We've got transportation costs, which is absolutely necessary. You know, if you want to drink that bottle of California wine and you live in Connecticut or New York or Massachusetts, there is an expense of getting that to you. Otherwise, you aren't able to physically get your hands <laughs> on that bottle of wine. There's The expertise that goes into making that wine, you know, you could get a bottle of wine from somebody who doesn't know how to make wine, but it's not going to taste as good to you. So I think that just saying, oh, just the quality of the juice only costs such and such. It's like, yes, but there are other things that go into Actually, making that bottle of wine that if you didn't include those costs, you literally would not have that wine in front of you. So I think that's a little misleading.
1: I always think it's a good point that people should think of, you know, our listeners when you're shopping for wine. If there is a $10, price tag, retail price, like you said, Kim, what went into that for shipping? What went into that for the cork, the bottle? And if it's in a three-tier state, how much is the distributor getting on that? How much is the salesperson getting on that? How much is the retail store? And then what's the actual value of that quality of the wine that you're getting? Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes sense that you spend a little bit more. You should In theory, be getting better quality grape wine in there, right? Right. I mean, it it only because the transportation
0: cost is going to be the same, the bottle cost is fairly the same for the glass and the cork and the closure or whatnot. Yeah, overhead is going to be the same, whether it's a five dollar bottle or a fifty dollar bottle. So, yeah, there are, I think, up to a certain point, there's only so much that you can say, Oh, this is sort of extra, you know. And then start thinking about, well, where is the value in what is in the bottle? And not just like just the juice, but how good the juice is, whether it's because the vineyard is in a a well-placed area that maybe costs a little bit or because of the expertise of who's picking it, growing it, making it.
1: So knowing all of that, Kim, they they mentioned what would be worse that you pick an inexpensive wine that you probably don't like or an expensive wine that is just average, right? I mean, is it what's the worst thing? It, spend less on the bottle and it's just terrible or you spend a lot and it's just, you don't think it's, and it's worth it. Meh. So it's yeah, just I think I it mean, depends.
0: I think if you have a little bit more income than you, that you can spend, maybe it's just disappointing if you spend more money and you get kind of a meh bottle of wine. I mean, yes, it's disappointing, but at the end of the day, you're not Really losing too much, as opposed to spending a little less money, but then getting something that's completely undrinkable. Because at least with the one that you've spent more money on, you still have something that's pretty tasty. But if you get something that is totally undrinkable, you've really wasted your money. I mean, I think personally, Kim, if I buy something
1: in the ten dollar range, I'm not usually really disappointed. I I am assuming I shouldn't expect. Oh, you're all right because I think that there's expectation it,
0: right? going right. into it. But if it. you
1: have a good bottle, you're like, wow, for, mm-hmm. for ten dollars this was a really good bottle. But I never really think it's not what it should have been. I kind of had a, an expectation that at ten dollars it's going to be ten dollars, you know? So it, it was kind of a, a different way to look at that, I guess. Mm-hmm. But but they did mention if you spend twenty-five dollars or more, they mentioned that most of that money in that twenty-five dollar bottle goes towards marketing. Now this <laughs> I had to talk to you about because I really don't agree with that. And I was wondering what you thought of that comment. That I don't
0: made. agree with that either.
1: And tell me your reason why you feel it's not marketing.
0: Because there are so many wines at the 25 to say 50 range that frankly have barely any marketing. So I don't know what group of wines they're talking about. That's a $25 bottle. I, I can only assume they mean $25 bottles of wine that are a brand as opposed to, say, a chateau or some little place in Chianti or whatnot. But I feel like 25 is where you're really starting to get into the more interesting wines, especially if you focus on sort of smaller producers and areas that are well-known and that the producers might be just one of many, many, many in those areas. So like $25 bottle of Ribera del Duero from central Spain or $25 bottle of something from Campania, $25 bottle of something from Vouvray in the Loire Valley. You're not getting big producers. You're getting small producers. You're getting fairly high quality, well-crafted, interesting wines at that price point for those regions. Now, I mean, are they looking at kind of mass market branded things from California that are in that sweet spot of $25? Maybe. And in that case, yes, it would be marketing. But I think to lump everything in one price point into that category, I think is off base.
1: I agree. And I like how you said the brand thing, because I feel it's most of the big brands at lower price points probably put out more in marketing.
0: That's what I think. Yeah, I mean yeah. they're
1: probably putting less. We talked earlier about the the dollar value of what it actually putting in the bottle for wine. They're probably putting in more in marketing for those brands than they are for the actual juice. Yeah, I think percentage wine. wise.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that.
1: Well, I'm glad we we agreed on that. <laughs> the other thing they did in this article that is they talked about testing a psalm, giving him a ten dollar bottle and a hundred dollar bottle, and say, you know, what did you? Th- Could you tell what's the difference? And I thought it was a good point that they made that it all goes back of how the wine lasted and maintained its quality pretty much on the finish. So like the $10 bottle, they didn't really get anything lasting in their mouth with it. In the $100 bottle, there was more going on. So I mean, typical of what a psalm would say, but it should be exactly what an average wine drinker would say too. Wouldn't you think, Kim?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's all going to be individual. And goodness knows there are enough stories out there about, well, this, you know, $12 bottle of wine tricked these psalms the thinking it was more expensive, blah, 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 blah. So sometimes with those tastings, yeah, you can be either tricked or pleasantly surprised, whichever perspective you want to take on it. But I, you know, I would agree that one of the hallmarks of or what you expect in a more expensive bottle is that complexity and is that length and kind of those simpler, shorter Um, tasting wines is one of the indications that we usually get that it's a less expensive bottle.
1: They also mentioned, Kim, in this article about gold medals. Now, listeners have probably seen this when you're looking at the the wine shelf. Some wines have a little gold medal or a silver medal or saying that it's won a medal at some competition, how did you relate that to putting, you know, how much you should spend if it has a gold medal on it? How do you think they were trying to relate that to, to cost of the wine? Because they said so it I, really didn't mean anything.
0: Yeah. I, I don't really think it means a lot. And also this is an article that is from Australia. So there may be a little more of a cultural cachet for Australian wines in kind of more of a local market or that type of a sort of judging criteria kind of thing that maybe a medal carries a little bit more weight, but we really don't see, I mean, unless you're in California or you don't really see, I think around here, wines being entered into like competitions. Like I think a lot of the ones that do tend to be startup wines, new winemakers, but only really if they're in the area of like, you know, a winemaking region that they can then enter into these things. Um, I mean, I, I've seen a few that are competitions in in the Finger Lakes, and I know that they do them in California, but I don't feel like that is something that consumers really pay much attention to. Never had somebody come up and say, find me a gold medal winner wine. I'm like mm, right. no, I, th- I think, you know, scores from writers certainly used to be more important and that those critical one hundred point scores still carry a little bit more weight than than any medal would.
1: And again, that medal awards thing could go towards marketing, where they're spending money to submit their wines, and then they're spending money to market that they won the award, and then they spend money to put the stickers on the bottle.
0: Yeah, but I don't and, think that has any influence on the consumer. Like I don't right, think the right. consumer no, looks at that and cost, says, you know. Yeah, but yeah, you're you're right. Yeah, if you were had to pay like an entrance fee to put your wine in the county fair. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> For judging, maybe.
1: Years ago, I used to always think that it was a better guide towards the wine, you know, what it was, quality of the wine, because it was independent people rating it at these fairs or these- But how
0: would, how do you know that?
1: Yeah. And then over time, I learned that it was really more of centri- like a localized thing. Yeah. And there were really wines that you can't even get in our area anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah so- that's kind of what I've always thought too. And, and it's all, one of the things that, has always made me scratch my head about, you know, there are some wines that have all little gold medal stickers on them is and no one knows what those competitions are. Like, we don't know how they're run. We don't know when they are. We don't know yeah. who's the judge, you know, it's just, it's there. Cause we know just from like the Olympics and things like that, we know what, you know, a gold medal is, but who is running these, Competitions or tasting panels or what that you know it it seems to be mysterious yes. <laughs> sort of uh, labeling thing on the, on the wine bottles. Plus, you don't know if
1: that wine that they actually have the medal on is actually the one that was submitted. They could just say, we won a gold medal or this brand won 50 gold medals. It doesn't mean that vintage or that particular wine. And
0: it it can be the same for somebody's score. It's like you need to pay attention to who is giving that 92 point score. I could tomorrow start putting scores on wines that i review and then someone could say oh yeah you know kim simone gave it a blah 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 blah
1: right you can find a review on anything you can't you totally but can. you'll also find them the other way as well because it's a different palate right. tasting it so you don't point. know how
0: unscrupulous people are being and all right that, so right You're listening to The
1: Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. We air every week on Franklin Radio, WFPR, 102.9 FM here in Franklin, Mass. In our past episodes, you can find us on SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. For more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Now we have an article that was in the Napa Valley Register.com, which I, I think I told you about this before, Kim. It's one of the most annoying websites I ever go to, but it always asks you a million questions before you get to the content. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Maybe mm-hmm. it's just my browser. Anyway, there's a lot of if, things
0: you got to click out of.
1: Yeah, but they put really <laughs> good articles being a Napa or area publication. And Dan Berger is the gentleman who writes really good articles. And he focused on how sweet wine is in the history of how sugar is selling wine. And, and Kim and I got into some conversation about this article, like some, maybe some tricks on it. And then we found another article. It was entitled Snake Oil for Sale that was in the tasting panel magazine that we're going to relate to this article. But uh, first, Kim, what did you think about the Napa Valley Register article on sugar and sweetness.
0: Honestly, I have a little bit of a beef with this article. I think his palate is overly sensitive to sugar. I'm just going to go out and say it. Okay. That being said, I do agree with him on some points that some wines these days are rounder, perhaps sweeter, definitely higher in alcohol than that same wine might have been 30 or 40 years ago. I don't necessarily think it's the fault of the winemaker. I don't think there is as much... He seems to be implying that there is this movement on the part of winemakers to make su- make their wines sweeter, make their... Traditionally dry wines like Sanceres, like Muscadets, like Pinot Grigio from Italy to make them sweeter for some segment of the market that seems to like sweeter stuff. Um, we're human beings. We like sugar. We just like that's just a given. Like humans like sweetness. But I think a lot of it, and I've noticed this with certain things from the Loire Valley, from Chablis, white wines have gotten rounder and richer. And, you know, sometimes fruitier and sweeter, but I think it more has to do with warmer summers, honestly, because those alcohol levels are also creeping up. I think I had a Sancerre the other day that was 14%. Like that's kind of unheard of. We're having a a little bit of a difficult time at the wine school tracking down Chablis that are really minty and uh, uh, flinty and minerally and really, really bone dry because the last few vintages, wines have been really round. So I took away from this article that he is placing blame on winemakers for changing the style of their wines. And and I don't think that's fair, honestly. Uh, and, and also some of the he's he's describing wines, I just, I completely don't agree with. He says some New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs are so sweet that they mimic dessert wines. I have never yeah, had a New Zealand Sauvignon that. Blanc that mimics a dessert wine. Yeah, I, I have a good that. palate. I love Sauvignon Blanc. I've never had a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that tasted like a dessert wine, honestly.
1: Yeah, good point.
0: So, do, I do mean, I don't know. I, I think he's a little over the top in this article.
1: I mean, saying sugar sells, my, my understanding of what I've heard a lot is it's, it's kind of an older generation that was brought up with a sweeter palate. But do you think the generations, the younger generations still have a sweet palate? That's why the wines maybe leaning towards more sweetness lately?
0: I think sweeter wines are excellent for people who don't either don't drink a lot of wine, so they don't necessarily like higher acid, higher tannin, really bone dry wines. So having a little bit of residual sugar in there makes them more pleasant if it's not a familiar taste sensation in your mouth, frankly. It's like trying to drink Black coffee versus coffee with lots of cream and lots of sugar. You know, lots of cream and lots of sugar makes it kind of taste like a dessert. But if you were to take all that out of there and just have a cup of black espresso, that takes some getting used to. So I would say for people that don't drink a lot of wine, just want something kind of pleasant, yeah, a little bit of residual sugar in there, fine, no problem. And for people who are just starting out drinking alcohol, whether they're midlife and and have never really had a taste for wine, or if they're 21, 22, 23 and just starting to explore that, tends to be, I have found in my experience, where the people who are enjoying sweetness in their wine tend to land. And I've found that as people experiment with different styles, different grapes, different places in the world, try things, have them with food, they do tend to lean as they gain more experience to drier, to more tannic, sometimes to lighter, higher acid. So I think that there's, there's a spectrum. I think there's a pendulum. And to say that it's all one particular generation or one particular age, I don't think is necessarily fair. But I, I don't have any issue with novice wine drinkers getting into the beverage because they're enjoying something with a little bit of sweetness to it. I, I actually think that is the normal way of doing it, frankly.
1: Talking about people drinking wine, he, his article, he mentioned the average wine drinker, what he considered the average wine drinker only has 6 glasses of wine in a year. So on that note and talking about you know the palate of the average drinker, if you're only having 6 glasses a year and most of the stuff you're drinking is what's being put out on the market now with a little bit of sweetness, you probably don't know the traditional, you know, the quote traditional or dry styles of wines. So it may be considered that a lot of stuff is sweet. You know what I'm if, saying? If, if you you're don't drink it all six, the time, if you're
0: drinking six glasses of wine a year, I don't consider you a wine drinker.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said Honestly. that. He's saying the average wine drinker. I would say that's a non-wine drinker. I would say
0: that that it. is someone who has a glass of wine in a social situation that is required of them to have a glass of wine, like Thanksgiving, somebody's wedding, right. um, <laughs> you know, a cocktail party. That's three right there. So right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I don't sense. consider that to be I, I think indicative of wine drinkers in general. Right. So you, I, yeah, that, that's one of the one of the many reasons I have a little bit of an issue with this. Um and it, I mean yeah, I guess it is an article. No, I I understand. Piece.
1: I, and you had mentioned earlier about having a hard time finding drier style varietals and I think lately it's been really hard to find what you would call traditional or or varietally correct wines because I mean, I've tasted recently say like Orvieto from Italy Mm -hmm. that it didn't have any classic characteristics of Orvieto. It was like totally different style. So I can see things are changing in the wine world. and, And this is one of the things and sugar is definitely one of them. You also mentioned Kim about how he gave some wine examples and the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc being sweeter. The the one I thought he was spot on with was Pinot Noir. And we've talked yeah. about this many times where brands like Miomi, they're made with less percentage of Pinot Noir, and it tends to be heavier and, and more sweet than yep. it typically should be.
0: Or it's been or it's it's had coloring added to it.
1: Right. So it's not the traditional style. So it tends to be sweeter. One of right. the other, like you, on your New Zealand 7 blanc point, he mentioned the California Zin, higher in alcohol. So it had a sweeter finish, which it's always been pretty much higher alcohol. But yeah. I've never gotten a sweeter finish on a California Zin. I haven't gotten a sweeter time.
0: finish, but I've had some Zins. And this isn't even like just now. This was going back 15 years or so. That even if they were 15, 16% alcohol on the labels, still had that jammy fruitiness that could come across as sweetness. So, I mean, I just think that's indicative of the grape, personally. I mean, if you grow Zinfandel in a really hot area, which a lot of the better ones are from places like Lodi, California, that are super hot in the summer, you're getting really, really ripe fruit and if some of those grapes have started to raisinate on the on the vine and literally dry out and turn to raisins you are going to get sweetness in there but again i don't think that is the winemaker saying hey the wine drinkers like sweetness let's make a sweet wine no i think right. that's just that's mother nature doing it for us
1: right good point now let's let's bring this into the other article that we found came about snake oil for sale which I had to pass you right away when I saw it cuz I knew you'd appreciate <laughs> you know my
0: this, you know my feelings on the subject that they bring up in this uh <laughs> in, in this yeah, piece
1: in this tasting panel magazine it this article was spot on about the dirty business of saying things are clean or or that they they're sugar free or what was your point you wanted to bring out that's kind of related to the sugar part of this article
0: Yeah so the the big one that always like completely drives me nuts when i see ads for it is there's this one particular ad for one of these quote unquote clean wines that their ad puts a glass of their wine up against another glass and the other glass is filled with sugar cubes and the insinuation is our wine is this way and everybody else's wine is full of sugar like added sugar now when we talk about wines that are riper, sweeter, like we were just talking about with the article from um, Napa Valley Register, that's not sugar, cane sugar added to the wine. It's that the actual grape sugars might still be in the wine and just haven't completely fermented out. This idea of sugar cubes in a wine glass to get you to think, that every other wine has all of this added sugar to it and that no, my brand doesn't really, really drives me nuts because it is complete manipulation of the fact. I don't know. It's this insinuation. And that that's what I really liked about this article was that the author put into words, my feelings (laughs) on the subject that get me very riled up. Um, And he breaks it down into um, three Different ways that their marketing does this. And he says uh, the first is manipulation by insinuation. And that's what this is. It's like they're insinuating that everybody else's wines has all this added sugar to it. The use of meaningless terms, which again, we see this all the time in wine marketing. And we've talked about it a lot. And then obscuring transparency. So making it sound like there is more going on with everybody else's wines by sort of making it seem like you are doing a better job at making this healthful product, which is you know, trying to make it sound different from everybody else's.
1: And the example he gave for the sugar thing was many promote their wines as being low carb with no added sugar. The problem is not that this is false, but rather this is true of virtually every dry table wine out right. there. The other thing he mentioned in this article, Kim, was about additives. There's a lot of different things out there. But it it applies to only a handful of Mm -hmm. uh, high volume, low cost commercial brands. So to say that it's nothing's added to this wine and we don't use this, we don't use that, which that's virtually true about a lot of wines, except for the big, big, big production. Anything else in the snake oil article or the sugar (laughs) article, Kim?
0: Just that this was was like, it spoke to my heart. (laughs) Like, oh, thank you for putting into words what I haven't been able to.
1: They actually ran it. Two months in a row, it was so good. You must oh, have really? a lot of feedback That's uh, awesome. on the article. So, yeah, it, it, you hit it right on the head. I mean, for someone to come out and just say, you know, just be aware that there's a lot of tactics being used. And, yeah. Uh,
0: and that it's all marketing, you know, yeah. this is not, yeah. I, uh, the other,
1: the other <laughs> point in that, Kim, I thought you would have liked is when he said, you know, they're saying all this about their wine and then you go to their website to find out. Yes. Let me t- see the truth about this. And Absolutely.
0: there's nothing there that tells you it's true. And that right? that was kind of in the obscuring transparency. It's like, you know, one of the, best things that you ever taught me, Mark, was if you really need to know or really want to know more about this wine, Google the text sheet. you know don't just go to their the winery website because the text sheet sometimes can be really hard to find. But the more that a winery tells you about their wine in a technical sheet, the more that you can trust that this is the real deal. And that if you are, you know, searching high and low for information on a wine, and the only thing that they will tell you is it goes great with chicken, your chances are this is some manipulated, big old mass-produced kind of wine. And that's exactly what he is saying here is that if you can't find anything about these wines, not even the grape varieties that they're made out of, that should be a red flag that there is something not quote unquote natural. Um kind of not right about these wines because, you know, you want to see that level of data in order to be able to trust that what you are consuming is what you want to be consuming.
1: He, he gave an example, Kim, it said a wine was mentioning that we estimate that less than 0.01% of the world's wines meet our strict criteria. So he said, wow, I got to see what your criteria is. He went and there was ab- absolutely nothing that said what their cri- criteria was, what they're even measuring. It's all words. They're so they're just, it's yeah. just
0: like marketing mumbo jumbo to use scare tactics, honestly. Ugh,
1: well, yes. he, he, did, uh, he did end the article saying buyer beware. And we say right. that all the time. Know what you're buying, what you're putting in your mouth, what you're drinking for one. There's a lot out there. So it's easy to find out about it and see if it's true or not.
0: Right. So thank you, Eric mom. For this article. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We always welcome your questions and your comments. You can find past episodes of our show on SoundCloud and iTunes. See you next week. Cheers. Wine, wine, wine.